right, well, let's start and think about the impact of Jesus' Jesus' life. <clears throat> and um, I remember an article many years ago where someone delved into this um, idea of the impact of Jesus' life, like if Jesus had never been born at Christmas, you know, if he'd never come into the world, how it would have impacted the world. It's pretty profound when you look at all of the impact that his life has had. And we can see his impact, I thought of a couple ways this morning as we start out today. One is just on the makeup of man. And we talked about this last week a little bit. I have the table I'll put back up here in a minute. But here's this verse we looked at. We think about how we are created. And as I said last week, I couldn't have explained this when I started ministry 25 years ago. But now I have a pretty good handle, I think, on what it looks like, how we relate to, to God, to each other, to the world. Uh, First Thessalonians 5.23, created in God's image. Here's what Paul says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are, in a sense, a triune being, just like God is a father, son, and spirit. We are, you know, a body, soul, and spirit. And it's pretty fascinating to think about that. And this is what what this table looks like. We think about our makeup. Um, Understanding this, Uh, First, understanding it before Christ, before we're saved. Like we are born dead in sin, right? And so before salvation, when we're in the flesh, I am a soul. And my soul is my personality, it's my thinker, it's my feeler, it's my chooser. It's the unique person that I am. It's why I tell jokes and, you know, it's why someone else organizes their closet to the upteenth degree. They have a unique personality. And then I have a spirit, but my spirit is dead to God. And so I can't relate to God Um, I can respond, I think when he speaks to me, you can respond to the word. I was thinking about that this week and what it looked like in the Old Testament. But I'm a soul that has a spirit that is dead to God. I will not seek God out in any way. I have no desire for God. And then I live in a body. That's before I'm saved. After I'm saved, there is a change that takes place when I'm in Christ. Now all of a sudden, Christ has come into me and his spirit has made my spirit what? Alive. I'm alive in Christ and so I am a spirit now which is alive to God. And I desire God and I desire the things of God and I have a brand new heart. And now I I have a soul, a personality, same thing, thinker, feeler, chooser, and I live in a body. So after I'm saved, I'm now a spirit alive to Christ. I I am a spirit that has a soul and lives in a body. That's the change before and after Christ. And that's why we always say our identity is in Christ because now I am living through my spirit. That's who I am. I'm defined by who Christ is in me. And so we see the impact of Jesus' life right there. But then we can think about the impact of Jesus' life when it comes to the meaning of life. And everybody today is looking for the meaning of life. Like, how do I find the meaning of life? And we'll see today these two ideas, the makeup of man and the meaning of life interconnect. But listen to this article. In fact, I might have put some on the screen here. An issue to the highly regarded science magazine, New Scientist, asked several basic philosophical questions and attempted to give answers from a strictly scientific point of view. One of the questions was this, what is the meaning of life? And trying to answer about the meaning of life, the author begins with a bleak reality. Here's what he says. The harsh answer is, it has none. (laughs) Your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. When it ends, a few people will remember you for a while, but they will die too. Even if you make the history books, your contribution will soon be forgotten. Humans will go extinct, earth and the sun will be destroyed, eventually the universe itself will end. Again, this appalling reality, how can a human life have any real meaning? Wow. 
I mean, why live? I mean, boy, that's a very hopeful uh, little article there coming from the New Scientist magazine back in 2016. And so we can see very clearly in this article the significance of the life of Jesus because Jesus gives us life and Jesus gives us significance. There is a meaning to life and it's wrapped up in who Christ is and it's found not only in his death but ultimately again in his life. We're in this series more to the story, right? And in this series, we're looking at the reality that Jesus puts the gospel into everyday language. And so we've seen it through the story of the Good Samaritan and when he turned the water into wine and when he healed the nobleman's son and last week when he healed that, uh, that lame man by the pool of Bethesda. And what's really fascinating is in all of these, we're looking for the more of the story. Like what's the, what's the hidden kind of layers in this story that show us the gospel? And we see it in the phraseology and the symbolism of the stories. Today's story is the story of the bread of life, when Jesus fed the 5,000 out in the wilderness. And it's really, I mean, the more of the story is extremely obvious in this story. And yet this was the hardest one to, to, to kind of preach because there's just so many verses. And so we're really not going to touch on a lot of it. Just going to kind of summarize what is the more of the story here. Here's the thing about this story today as we look at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is like one of those iconic children's Sunday school stories, right? But don't let it fool you. It's one of the iconic children's Sunday school stories with grown-up themes and eternal implications. <laughs> I mean, when you, get into, when you get into the rest of John 6 after the miracle happens the next day and Jesus starts to unpack and talk about what it means about the bread of life and all those implications, it's like, wow, this is a really... In fact, it is so... I mean, I mean really, some of it is like, the stuff you might not teach to the kids in Sunday school because they might not get it. And uh, it's pretty deep, and a lot of people stop following Jesus when he starts to explain what that story actually meant. And so pretty powerful. And I think it's interesting because oftentimes people say, if, if I said, what's Jesus' most famous sermon, most important sermon? Most people would say the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm telling you, I think the bread of life may be his most significant sermon. And um, we're not going to even get into the most of it today. But if you read through John 6, it is incredibly, incredibly powerful. So today's big idea, the meaning of life is found in the bread of life. The meaning of life is found in the bread of life. Of course, that's Christ. He's the bread of life. And the meaning of life is found in the bread of life. We'll see that underscored throughout this message today. And three perspectives on the feeding of the 5,000. And so this great story when Jesus takes this little boy's lunch and feeds 5,000 people, we're going to see three perspectives on this. We're going to see this sign through the sets of, of three sets of eyes this morning. And um, I think it'll be pretty powerful as we do. We'll start in John chapter 6, verse 1. And we're going to be in John 6 and Mark 6. This is the one miracle that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all share. Like they all tell this story. And that's not usually the case. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so... Just note, they see the signs that Jesus is doing. We said John has eight specific miracles that are not miracles, but they're signs. And they are specifically to point out that Christ is the Messiah. And so here we are, we're seeing that they're seeing lots of signs. And as John says at the end of his book, Jesus did many other signs that he didn't put in the, in the Bible um, that prove again that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that we can have life in his 
name. So they're seeing the signs, they're following him. And then verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. And so here's, we're over here, we're seeing now that, that uh, as this story unfolds, Jesus notices the people. And here's the first perspective, here's the first set of eyes, the multitude, and they missed the meaning of life and they had no purpose. The, the multitude has missed the meaning of life and they have no purpose. And Jesus looks at them and he sees them wandering aimlessly through the wilderness. And uh, I think this is pretty fascinating. And here's how he specifically defines them. They are a sheep without a shepherd. And just think what, what a sheep without a shepherd would, would be like. They'd be wandering aimlessly. They would be unprotected. They'd be vulnerable. They would be hungry. They would not get any real rest. I mean, they would just be out there facing the elements of the world. And, and what I think is really fascinating today is that the crowd of Jesus' day is the world. It's the same as the world of today. Like the crowd that Jesus sees here, this multitude, that's the world. That's the people we see every day. We go out, we see the masses around us wandering aimlessly, sheep without a shepherd. And here's three specific ways to understand these sheep without a shepherd there. First, people without a purpose. A people without a purpose, just think about that. And here's the reality. For a Jewish person, you had all the purpose in the world wrapped up in who you were, right? Because Christ called you to be that nation that would take Yahweh to the world, that, that you would take the message of Yahweh and you would introduce the Messiah to everyone. That was your purpose wrapped up in who you were. And yet, how can you introduce Yahweh to the world when you don't even know him? And so here's all these Jewish people and they don't even know him. They are sheep without a shepherd. And so they do not know the meaning of life and course they don't know how to get to the bread of life i want you to think a moment though what it is like to live as someone who has no purpose you'd be constantly searching for your purpose some people think they can find their purpose you know like in their job like if i just invest a few more hours make a few more sacrifices try a little harder then their job can give them purpose and that's no that can't happen that cannot happen i can find my purpose on my job but not in my job like, like we, can, we can express our purpose through our work, but I'm never going to find my purpose in my very job. That just doesn't work. I, think, I thought of David, and David wanted to build a temple for God, and, and God said, no, David, you're not the one to do that. It's a noble desire, but I'm going to have your son Solomon build a temple. And so Solomon built the temple for God. And, but here's the reality, that building that temple was not the purpose of David or Solomon, but they expressed their purpose as they built it. So there's a, there's a huge difference there. We sometimes think maybe we, we will find our purpose in, in a relationship. But again, I, I was thinking this through. It's not really not my purpose to be a great dad or a great husband. That's not my purpose. I can express my purpose as a dad, as a husband. But what happens if, if I find my purpose in being a great dad and you raise a rebellious kid that I not have any purpose in my life then, you know? Again, we have to kind of understand where is our purpose grounded in bringing glory to God and building great relationships? Sure, but there's a fine line between what is my purpose and what isn't my purpose. And the world is looking for their purpose in all these places that simply cannot provide it. I don't find my purpose in my successes. I don't find it in my vocation. I don't find it in my relationships. I find it in Christ. The bread of life is the meaning of life. And that's what I need to understand. So these are people without a purpose. They're also victims without an advocate. Victims without an advocate. For instance, 
A little context here would be helpful. I think we see this in John, in, in, uh, John 6, 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. How phenomenal is that? That Jesus is going to do this great miracle on the bread of life, and he's going to do it on Passover. See, that's the way God works. He just lines all this stuff up, so you get the significance of it. And so here he is. And so Josephus says that there was maybe upwards of 3 million people that have descended upon Jerusalem for the Passover. And so there's all these people here. These are all the people. And why are, they, why are they coming to Passover? Well, part of the reason they're coming to Passover is because they remember the original Passover, and there was this one named Moses who came and was the great deliverer and led them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And they are looking for the one that will be like Moses. Actually, that's what they're looking for. In fact, here it is over in Deuteronomy 18. Here's what Moses told the people back in the Old Testament. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And you can go to Acts 3 and Peter quotes the same thing to the people in Acts 3. He says, you just crucified the one that was like Moses. You, you crucified the one that was greater than Moses. They're looking for this. They're longing. They're a people without a purpose. They are sheep without a shepherd. And they are a victim without an advocate. So think about it in this way, victim without... Remember in John chapter 2, Jesus starts his earthly ministry. One of the first things he does, turns the water into wine, and then he goes into the temple and does what? Drives out the money changers and, and turns over the tables and you know just, just disrupts the whole sacrificial system because they're, they were price gouging the people. The people coming in to, take, to, to, to do Passover and, and, and they were price gouging them and overcharging them and taking advantage of them. And the religious elite did this often. They, they did this in so many different ways. They redefined the law to suit their own needs. They looked down on the poor. They exalted themselves. They victimized the very people they were called to serve. They were to be the shepherds. They weren't shepherding. They were, they were victimizing the people they were to lead. And this is why when Jesus came along, he was such a threat to the religious establishment because not only did he challenge their power, he redefined how to lead. How to, how to lead as someone that, that is humble, someone that is a servant king. Which is why both the commoner and the sinner were drawn to Jesus. They were also victimized by the Roman government at this time. The Roman government, they were in oppression to them who overcharged them with taxes and took exorbitant amounts of money from them and, and, and would beat them. And it was just not a good thing. And I shared this two weeks ago that when Jesus came along and he starts healing, wow, check. When he turned the water into wine, well, hey, check. When he defends them, like in the temple, like check. And now he's going to feed 5,000 of them. And at the end of the story, they're like, check, you can be our Messiah. You check all the boxes. You can, you can defend us and heal us and, and protect us and, and feed us. And whoa, you're the one like Moses. Until, until we get to the end of today's story. And then some of them have second thoughts about that. So they were victimized by the religious establishment, they were victimized by the Roman government, and they were victimized by, you know the third they were victimized by? Anybody know? Sin and Satan. Yeah, that's, that's the whole point of it all. That's the whole thing, right? You and I are victimized today by sin and Satan unless we come to Christ. And then we're, no, we're not victims anymore. We talked about that last week, didn't we? We're no, vic- no longer victims because of the cross. But they are victimized then ultimately 
by sin and by Satan. And so these people are a sheep without a shepherd. They are people without a purpose, victims without, without, uh, that lack an advocate, and they, here's the deal, they see the physical but not the spiritual. They see the physical but not the spiritual. And so look down here in verses 14 and 15. Here's what it says after he feeds the 5,000. Here's what happens at the end of the story. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. This is the one like Moses. This is Deuteronomy 18. This is the one greater than Moses who has come into the world. Perceiving them that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And why would Jesus do that? Didn't he want to be their king? Well, see, he didn't want to be king of their, of their stomachs. He wanted to be king of their hearts. <laughs> that was the whole point. It's like, yeah, I can protect you and I can heal you and I can feed you, but I can do so much more because I am the meaning of life. Because I can, I can reach in and heal your spirit and heal your soul and, and take away the victimization to sin and Satan and death. And so again, the meaning of life is found in the bread of life. This is the first set of eyes. The multitude who are wandering around like sheep without a shepherd Here's the second set of eyes this morning, the disciples. The disciples found the meaning of life and were discovering their purpose. So now you have these disciples, they found the meaning of life, they know who Christ is, and they're discovering what their purpose is. Contrasted with the multitude of the world, we have these disciples, and I think it's a great contrast. In fact, listen to what it says at the very end of John 6, at the very end of this whole story, Listen to what it says. These are the students that have a teacher. So you got the sheep without a shepherd. Now you got students that have a teacher and uh, they know the, that he's the meaning of life and they're discovering their purpose in life and they're finding something in him that they couldn't find anywhere else that somehow he is able to resonate with their spirit and with their soul, not just with their physical body, but with their spirit and their soul. So listen to what it says in John 6. After this, at the very end of this, after Jesus teaches the great bread of life sermon and explains why he did this miracle, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him so jesus said to the 12 do you want to go away as well simon peter answered him lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of god and so while there will be many that will stop following jesus at this point the 12 don't peter and james and john and the rest of the 12 they do not stop following Jesus. They double down on their commitment to him. They will lose their faith when he goes in the grave, when he's crucified. They will struggle with that, but they'll get through it. So here's some context to help you understand the story here because we need a little bit of context. So you go back to Mark chapter 6 and listen to the context that, that leads into Jesus feeding the 5,000. The apostles, note that they're called apostles here, not disciples, because they have gone off on their own to do ministry on their own apart from Jesus to spread his name to other regions. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away in the boat to desolate places by themselves. There's many coming and going. There's, like I said, millions of people descending upon Jerusalem for Passover, and the disciples have been out doing ministry on their own. They are tired. They are hungry. They need to decompress. They need to unwind. They need to unpack their ministry experiences and explain to Jesus, wow, this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened, and this guy said this and this guy did that, and this person believed, and, and this is what's going on. So the disciples head off with Jesus. He recognizes compassionately that they need this alone time with him. And they head off. 
So this is the context. They're tired, they're hungry. They need to decompress and unpack their most recent ministry experiences. This is what's going on with the disciples. Now, as we read on, though, look what happens next in verses 33 and 34. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So maybe they saw the boat, and they're like, hey, there they go on the boat. And they ran around the lake or the whatever, beat them off the pass, and when the boat docks, woo, there's a crowd of people gathering, coming from all the towns around because the word's out, hey, this one doing the signs, this, 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 this one, yeah, he's, he, he's coming, and so everybody gathers around. And now... This is the context for what happens because then Jesus sees them as the sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion on them. He begins to teach them and reach out to them and minister to them. And there are three lessons the disciples are going to learn here. At least three lessons we can draw out of the text. One, again, they're sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes ministry goes the extra mile. Sometimes ministry goes the extra mile and yes, Jesus was tired and all the disciples were tired and Jesus is like, well, you know what? These are like sheep without a shepherd. They need to be taught. They need to hear from the bread of life and I'm gonna teach them. And you, gotta, you have to put yourself in the disciples' shoes like, hey, this is our Jesus time here. You're infringing on our Jesus time. You think they maybe resented the crowd? <laughs> like, and it grew. And it's like, it's like 5,000 men, which means it's like 15 to 20,000 with the women and children. Seriously, that's, this is a massive, a massive outbreak of people that have come. And here are the 12 over there like, we were supposed to get alone time with you. I want to tell you about what happened on the road. But the reality is sometimes ministry goes the extra mile. There will come a time in Peter's life, in John's life, in James' life when they'll learn to go the extra mile. When they'll let themselves be persecuted and beaten and they will stand up and say, you can't shut us up. Because there, there are people all around here that are like sheep without a shepherd and they need to know about the Christ. They will, as Paul said, be compelled by the love of Christ. Why, why does Jesus feed the, the, the masses here? Why does he teach them and then feed them? He's compelled by what? The love that is his. The love of Christ takes hold of him and he has compassion on them. And the point here, let me just say that this lesson here applies to us all. Not just, not just to me, not just other elders, not just those in leaders. Everybody is a minister. We're all called to do ministry. And there are times in your life when you'll have a door open up and, and uh, props, I got to give props to Helen yesterday. What a great, she, she worked so hard yesterday and put this wedding on for, the, for one of these teen moms in her home. So amazed by what she did for that. And um, she asked me to, to do the, the service and I felt like I was supposed to do the service and I was so blessed in doing the service. I, I just can't tell you. When I was up here speaking to this young couple and I hardly knew them, but um, they're doing counseling at another church. And, but uh, as I was talking to them, I just felt such, such an amazing thing. It was just an amazing day. It's a God thing. Ministry goes the extra mile. And so Helen really showed that yesterday. And many of you have showed that throughout the years here when we reach out to other people. There's a fine line here. I will add this. You know, the burnout is not next to godliness. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there is a fine line there. We need to trust the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we do need to. Because after this all this day unfolds. What happens? The disciples and Jesus get away and they have their little Sabbath time and they do decompress and unpack and unwind. Here's another lesson. At times, ministry feeds us spiritually. It can also surprisingly feed us physically. And, and here's the point. So 
What happens is you read this story through, and uh, <clears throat> reading it from, from all four accounts, it seems like it unfolds like this because they all kind of tell it in their own way. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to imply that it's like this, that after like several hours, they send one of them up. It's probably Philip, according to John, comes up and says, Hey, Jesus, what a great sermon, man. That's the best four-hour sermon I've ever heard. Wow, you are just knocking it out of the park today. But uh, I think the people are maybe hungry. Hint, hint. I think they're a little tired. Maybe they want to go home. Maybe, maybe they should go to the surrounding. They can't go home because they're from all over the place. So maybe go to the surrounding cities and towns and get something to eat. You know, maybe we should break this up. And um, of course, he goes back to the disciples and the disciples are like, so what do you say? He wants us to feed him. okay, how are we going to do that? You know, and then they start, you know, and that's what he says over here. I think it's in John chapter 6. Here's what it says in John 6 then. John's account is that lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he knew he himself knew what he would, would do. So it's, you get a little different feeling from each author here. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are pretty consistent. And John kind of singles out Philip here. And it's like Jesus says, so where, where can we buy enough bread for all these guys? He knew what he was going to do. He had it planned. And so the great multitasker here, because Jesus has compassion on the multitude. He's teaching the multitude, going to feed the multitude. And at the same time, he's discipling his twelve teaching them some valuable lessons. And the point here that I'm trying to make is that sometimes, well, here's what Philip answered him. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And a denarii was like a day's wage. So you're talking like over 200 days wages, you know, to feed all these people. That's a lot of money. Plus, how are you going to haul it all back there to get food for 15 to 25? It's just crazy. Going on, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Barley is significant, tells us that it's about probably time for Passover. He goes on, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. That's just men, then their families are there too. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments and nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And my point is that sometimes ministry, while it's feeding us spiritually and while they're learning a spiritual lesson, it can do something to you physically. And here's what I mean. Can you just imagine as this miracle starts to unfold and Jesus blesses it and, and he hands a basket to James and then asks John and, then, and pretty soon they're like, where'd that basket come from? Where'd it, how, how do you do that? Where'd that basket come from? And pretty soon you're feeding thousands and thousands and thousands of people and all you had was five loaves and two fishes. Like, how's that happening? And something inside you, you know, just gets rejuvenated in the middle of doing this ministry. And that happens lots of times in ministry. Doing that wedding yesterday, it just kind of rejuvenated me. It was like, so, I was so glad I got to do that wedding. What a blessing I would have missed out on if I had not done that, done that wedding. And, and the reality is you see this so many times in so many ways. Doing physical or spiritual ministry can do something to you physically. Now it is true. It's a very common known fact that sometimes after a great time of ministry, you can have a great letdown. And we do physically need to just 
unwind. And they're going to unwind. They're going to, after this, get together and decompress. But it's just amazing as they watch this miracle unfold and as they see something about Jesus. And what's really cool is when they're done, they're left with 12 basketfuls left. Like each disciple goes home with a doggy bag. Wow, ain't that cool? I got my own doggy bag. Woo, what a miracle. And I was worried about having food. And yet if you read later on in Mark 8, they didn't get that. They never got the symbolism of the 12. Anyway, that's another story for another time. And then here's a third lesson. Whatever God calls us to, he will provide for. Like whatever God calls you to do in life, he's going to provide for it. And I can never, I look at this lesson all the time and I just think again about moving in this building. When we moved in here, it's been quite a few years now. And, but I remember going through that whole process and how there were so many roadblocks in the process of getting in here and, and buying this building and selling our building and how God worked it all out. But I remember all the, kind of the concerns and they were valid concerns. Like it's three times the size of our building. Like what will the heating bills be like? What will the utilities be? What will the insurance be? We didn't have any concrete answers other than we knew God was leading us here. I, I knew that for a fact just because of things God had, had done. And um, here we are all these years later. Hasn't been a, ever been an issue. In fact, we've probably never been in a better place. It's just amazing what God calls you to, He will provide for. And we need to know that we need to never limit ourselves by ourselves because we can do that, right? We can limit ourselves by ourselves. We can limit ourselves by our understanding or by our resources or by our emotions or by our strength or by our vision. And you can look at all of those things and see the disciples easily could have, they, not, they didn't understand what Jesus was going to do. They didn't have the resources to feed 20,000, 15,000 people. They're, they weren't emotionally invested in this. They were exhausted from the ministry. And, and just think that 12 guys... Think about it. 12 guys fed like 15,000 people. I mean, think about that. That's somehow it happened. And they certainly didn't have the vision of Jesus to see what Jesus saw. But Jesus, whatever God calls us to, he will provide us for. And we simply need to know that. We need to understand that. And so Jesus sees a sheep without a shepherd and he sees a chance to test his disciples. And the great multitasker brings this all together in one amazing event and the question we need to ask God at times is what are you asking us to do are we limiting ourselves by ourselves what are you asking us to do as a church how can we reach out how can we reach out and see the sheep without a shepherd around us and minister to them much like like Helen's home does that that home for for teen mothers that's exactly what they do and they see these people that don't know them the people without a purpose Young lives without a purpose. Those that don't know the meaning of life and have no purpose and they introduce them to the bread of life. So at the heart of this story, then there's a third perspective, right? We've seen the multitude. We've seen the disciples. We've seen where they stand when it comes to the meaning of life and finding purpose. And, and here we are again today, big idea. The meaning of life is found in the bread of life, bringing us to the third perspective, which is Jesus. And Jesus is the meaning of life, and he is living his purpose. <laughs> he is. He's living his purpose. Jesus is the meaning of life. Just know that the bread of life is the meaning of life, and he is living his purpose. And he draws us into what we would say is the more of the story. His purpose is to what? It's to be the meaning of life. It's to bring life to a world. 
that is hungry. He truly is the bread of life. And here's the key is we can't let the physical realities blind you to the spiritual truth. We, we need to watch this in life because it happens to us all the time in life and it happens. The reason so much happens in the story the way it does is because people are blinded to the spiritual truth by the physical realities. Like the disciples, they, they see how much fish they have and how much money they have and it's like, yeah, well, we can't feed them, but you know, you can feed them. And, and all the people that see Jesus do all these amazing miracles and signs, they see a, a physical reality. They don't understand the spiritual truth. Here's a couple of verses here. Let's just a, a little bit. We're going to just touch on a little bit from the rest of John here, not much. When they found him on the other side of the sea, this is like the next day, they said to him, Rabbi, Jesus, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And so here are these people, right? And he said, you're, you're not chasing after me because for spiritual reasons, because you know what I can do for you spiritually? I just gave you a good meal. I just fed you. And yeah, that's, that's, you're missing the point. Don't work, for the, don't work for the physical food. Work for the spiritual food that brings about eternal life. And then they ask him, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered him, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is our work? Is there some physical thing we do? No. We believe. Salvation is when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When we believe that He sacrificed Himself for our sins. When we believe that He can forgive us. When we believe that He is life. When we believe. And He says, that's your role in this. You just need to believe. And so, what is the more of the story here this morning? Well, for one thing, it is simply this, that Jesus is indeed the bread of life. He's the bread of life. He's the source of spiritual, eternal, and abundant life. Like we look at, again, who we are. Well, once we're saved, we are what? We are a spirit that has a soul and lives in a body. We have a spirit because the bread of life has fed us and made us alive spiritually. Before we're saved, we're a soul that has a spirit that's dead to God and we need the bread of life to make us alive. The, the point is, He feeds our spirit, He feeds our soul, He feeds our inner man. Like, we're real, we're real good. I'm real good at feeding my out, outer man, my physical man. Not much problem doing that. But we need to work on feeding our inner man, and we do that through the Scriptures, and we do that when we simply feast on the bread of life, and that, again, is symbolic. The second thing we learn here is that Jesus is more than enough. And so you look at the story as it unfolds. It says that everybody ate... Everybody got something to eat that day and they got all they wanted. Like, they didn't want any more. I mean, they might have wanted a doggy bag, but they didn't get one. Just the 12 disciples did. But, but they got more than they could have bargained for and they all left satisfied. And Christ will do that. There's only one person that can satisfy you. Your job won't. There's no other person in this world that will satisfy you. Your accomplishments won't satisfy you. 
Nothing will satisfy you except Christ and Christ alone. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And do you, do you, do you understand there, right? Christ satisfies us in a way that nothing and no one else can. He truly is the meaning of life. He is what everyone is looking for. And the problem with so many people is they're fixated on the physical, they miss the spiritual. They don't understand that what they long for is really wrapped up and found in Christ. And then we see this, right? Look at verse 41. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and he broke the loaves. And gave them to the disciples to eat. And he broke the loaves and and broke them over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the reality is that what a beautiful analogy, right? Because Christ was broken for us. Like Christ was broken for us. And we know that in communion, that's what he said. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread of life was broken. Symbolic of Christ's body being broken for us all. And the one who knew no sin took on sin. The one who had never had a vile thought took on our darkest thoughts. The one who was light was consumed in darkness. The one who was the bread of life became hungry. The one who was the living and eternal water became thirsty. He was broken for us so that we could be made whole. Whoa! Wow! He was broken, and in his brokenness, I find my healing and my wholeness. Wow, that is just kind of mind-blowing as we celebrate communion today as we take these physical elements in our hands may we see be able to see past them to the spiritual implications they carry may we see in the bread and in the juice the very life of christ broken for us and then given to us it is truly fascinating as jesus preaches this powerful sermon he manages to offend quite a few his words are hard to hear listen to what it says towards the end the jews then disputed among themselves remember He's the one like Moses. He's the sign. He's the one we're looking for. He checks all the Messiah boxes. And now look in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and, true, true food and my, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. When many of the disciples, verse 60, heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And a lot of disciples stopped following him. And you see how this great, this little children's Sunday school story of the fish and loaves turned into an adult, grown-up story. Like, you got to eat my blood, or drink my blood, and eat my body. And, And realize how offensive this would be to a Jewish person, because you weren't allowed to what? Drink blood. Like, that's one of the no-nos in the law. You couldn't drink blood. He's, he's totally offending them. And do you know why this is so hard for them to hear? Do you you get why it's so hard for them to hear? A couple reasons why. Number one, because they're so fixated on the physical, they're not seeing the spiritual. That's the problem. And all they can see is physical bread. and All they can see is a physical meal. They don't see the spiritual implications. I think the other reason then is this. When you can see your spiritual need is greater than your physical need, you will not be offended by Jesus' words. They will not be hard. 
There's a time in our life when we come to that point of realizing that my spiritual needs are greater than my physical needs. My need for a savior, my need for someone to, to, be, to be my victim against sin and death and Satan and hell. That's the greater issue. When I come to Christ, yeah, I'm no longer offended. The gospel's offensive until I come to that point and say my spiritual needs are greater than my physical needs. These people have not come to that point. His words are hard. His words are divisive. His words are offensive and many will stop following him. But again, Jesus didn't want to be kings of their stomach, but kings of their heart. That is what Jesus wanted. That is what Jesus wanted. I kept praying and asking the Lord, what is the more to this story? Because it's so obvious. Is there something else? Is there some? And this morning I got up and I didn't have time to vet this thought research this thought, say, did anybody else ever have this thought? But I'll tell you something that I thought was pretty phenomenal because Jesus talks in there about being the bread that comes down from heaven. What he does when he speaks about the bread of life is he, he does this phenomenal thing. He points them, he doesn't point them to the cross. He points them back to Moses, back to the manna that came down and fell on the ground. He points them back to the Passover and then he does that to point them to the cross. Like he points them back to their history, to Moses, to the manna, to all that, and then says all of that points to the one greater than Moses, which is me, which is I'm going to the cross. And so I was thinking, what's the more to the story here? And so here's the reality. That when they took Passover, they had this unleavened bread, right? Leaven was always associated with like sin. There was two reasons why they used leavened bread. One reason they used leavened bread in the initial Passover when they were fleeing Egypt is because it didn't take, the bread didn't take long to rise. It just, you know, it's like it cooked really quick, baked really quick. You took it and you ran. They didn't have time for it to like rise. So they took the, that unleavened bread. But throughout Scripture, leaven was likened to sin. So it's like, yeah, we don't want... We want to avoid the leaven, the sin of the world. And the, the Pharisees' teaching was likened to leaven. It was a corrupt teaching. And so you've, you've got the bread of life here contrasted to some degree with the bread of communion, this, this unleavened bread that they used. And I thought about something about bread because Jesus talks about this in the bread of life. Bread that has leaven or maybe bread without leaven but supernaturally has the power of Christ, rises. And Christ is the one who rose again. He's the, whether leaven or unleavened bread, He's the one who rose in victory over sin. He is the bread of life. He did not serve them, well, He served them loaves. He had five loaves and two fishes. He had bread that it looks like had risen. It was barley. Pretty fascinating. What's the more? What's the more of the story? Christ, the bread of life, who rose in victory over sin and death and hell. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the beauty of the gospel wrapped up in these stories that feed our spirit and feed our soul. Thank you that you are the meaning of life. Thank you that as we come to you, as we trust you, as we rely on you, as we look into you, we find the meaning of life. Bless now as we take communion, put our thoughts in our hearts and our focus.
under the spiritual implications of the bread and the juice. Let us see beyond the physical elements. Let us understand. Your body was broken so we could be made whole. Your blood was poured out so we could be forgiven and we could be given life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wayne and Rick are going to come down and serve the elements. And here's a question you can kind of focus through your mind. What physical realities are blinding me to spiritual truths? What physical realities? What sin? What circumstance? What relationship? What physical reality in my life is blinding me to the spiritual truth of what Christ is doing in my life? You can serve the elements and we'll reflect For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord, for your broken body that makes us whole. Amen. One of the most amazing realities when you think about that Last Supper was they're gathered in that room together and as Jesus gives thanks as he breaks the bread. I mean, what, a, what an ironic sort of twist, right? Like giving thanks for his broken body, giving thanks as he's about to go to the cross and his flesh be torn apart for you and I. And yet, you know why he can do that, right? You understand why he can give thanks in the face of suffering like that? It's because he knows his purpose. He knows he's the meaning of life and he knows his purpose. And let me just tell you, if you know your purpose in life, you'll be able to give thanks in the face of all kinds of incredible incredible suffering in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes thank you Lord for your blood that washes away sin, gives us life. Thank you, Lord, that we can proclaim the fact that you're coming again, because you're coming again, because you're coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's go out with this song today. We've got we to end singing a song together.